In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 15. Today's chapter meticulously lists the cities and regions that make up Judah's inheritance in the Promised Land, supplying a geographical account of their allotment. This allocation of land is in the broader distribution of territories among the twelve tribes of Israel as they settled in to their promised inheritances. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Thursday, October 5th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. As always, I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You hear me talk about them all the time. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. LHF can also provide mission speakers for your congregation. In fact, my congregation is welcoming a speaker from LHF on our Stewardship Sunday in just a couple of weeks. Our focus will be on our stewardship of God's Word, something the Lutheran Heritage Foundation knows all about. So you can learn more again at lhfmissions.org. Well, today's unique text, including the chapters to follow, pose a bit of a challenge for us in that it is essentially a long list of places and territories, but I'm sure our guest this morning will help us sort through it all, so please join me in welcoming back to the show the Reverend Paul Kane. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Sheridan, Wyoming. Pastor Kane, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Well, thank you for having me back. Good morning, everyone. Well, it is a, a beautiful day, a beautiful day to be in God's Word, and there are parts of the Bible that sometimes as you're reading through, especially if you become accustomed to narrative text where they're just telling a story, you get into things like the Chronicles or the Begats or the, you know, the list of armaments, or in this case, it's really just a list of territories so that it's recorded for posterity which parts of the Holy Land were allotted to all the various tribes and stuff like that. And that's our text for today, but I trust that we'll be able to get through it. Despite all the complicated Hebrew names, I'll do my best, folks. No need to write in unless you really want to, to correct my pronunciation. Uh, but, brother, um, as you prepared for this text today, what are some of the things that stood out for you? Well, for one, it's Judah. And we know Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the tribe from which our Lord comes according to the flesh. We're setting the stage for Jesus. I'd recommend if you have a really good Bible map of the 12 territories of the 12 tribes to pull that out, unless you're driving, of course, and look for places that are really familiar. Look for Bethlehem, that's in the area of the tribe of Judah, as we have the, the prophecy about where our Lord would be born. And Jerusalem is right next door in the territory of Benjamin. We're setting the stage for Jesus so that we can hear of him crucified and risen for the forgiveness of our sins. Also, don't be so discouraged when you look at all of these names. Some of the names are place names, but based off of people names. There are people you know that the Judahites would find hard to pronounce. There are places where you are studying the Bible right now that 
you could describe in a very similar way to this chapter that would be confusing to the original original audience of this chapter too. It's one that we do need to study and get through, but our focus uh, ultimately is on how this sets the stage for our Lord Jesus Christ. Setting the stage for Jesus. I think that's going to be a good uh, episode title, so I'm going to use that. Uh, also, a good encouragement as we struggle through these names. But as our guest said, you know, it's important, right? The, the Lord didn't leave this for us for no reason, so we're going to explore it today. Brother, would you lead us in prayer before we dig into the text? Certainly. Heavenly Father, Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, send your Holy Spirit upon us that we may have focus and that we may put the best construction on everything, not being discouraged by your word, but gladly hearing and learning it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, here we go. Starting with the first verse of chapter 15, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin at the farthest south. And their south boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea from the bay that faces southward. It goes out southward of the ascent of Akrabim and passes along to Zin and goes up south of Kadesh Barnea along by Hezron up to Adar and turns about to Karka passes along to Asmon, goes out by the brook of Egypt, and comes to its end at the sea. This shall be your south boundary. And the east boundary is the Salt Sea to the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary on the north side runs from the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary goes up to Beth Hogla and passes along north of Beth Arabah. And the boundary goes up to the stone of Bohan to, uh, sorry, the son of Reuben. And the boundary goes up to Debir from the valley of Achor and so northward, turning toward Gilgal, which is opposite the ascent of Adumimim, which is on the south side of the valley. And the boundary passes along to the waters of En Shemesh and ends at Enrogel. Then the boundary goes up by the valley of the son of Hinnom at the southern shoulder of the Jebusite, that is, Jerusalem. And the boundary goes up to the top of the mountain that lies over against the valley of Hinnom on the west and at the northern end of the valley of Rephaim. Then the boundary extends from the top of the mountain to the spring of the waters of Nephtoah and from there to the cities of Mount Ephron. Then the boundary bends around to Baala, that that is uh, Kiriath-Jarim, and the boundary circles west of Bala to Mount Seir and passes along to the northern shoulder of Mount Jerim, that is Chesalon, and goes down to Beth Shemesh and passes along by Timnah. The boundary goes out to the shoulder of the hill north of Ekron, then the boundary bends around to Shikaron and passes along to Mount Bala and goes out to Jabneel. Then the boundary comes to an end at the sea, and the west boundary was the great sea with its coastline. This is the boundary around the people of Judah according to their clans. So, Brother Pastor, this is pretty much the first section of our text, which is 
dividing it up according to Judah. Now, uh, what will follow is the land that's going to be allotted to specifically Caleb and his family, and then the next part will be the names of the cities that fell within Judah's territory. But just for these first 12 verses, these borders around the inheritance of Judah, uh, take us through the key points here. I mean, you said don't be afraid of such a list. So, you know, how can we use this type of passage to, uh, I guess, be edified in our faith? We can be edified because we're blessed with so many beautiful maps. I grew up with uh, a set of maps in my Sunday school room at church, printed in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. It wasn't Concordia Publishing House, but they were the maps that we had in our classroom. And as you were reading, I had one eye on the text and I had another eye on the map. And I was saying a prayer of thanksgiving for the good folks at this publishing house, as well as ours and all of the beautiful atlases that we have as Christians, people who know these places far better than I ever could, people who have been to these places in real life, sometimes risking life and limb, in order to show the right lines on a map that we would know the difference between where the tribe of Dan is and the tribe of Benjamin is and the tribe of Judah is and eventually the tribe of Simeon. I would also encourage folks, look up any unfamiliar word in a Bible dictionary. And if you don't have a Bible dictionary, this is one of the chapters that proves its worth. You can learn who some of the people behind the places are, and you can even learn a little bit of Hebrew along the way. Um, in the English Standard Version, you've got uh, lots of uh, interesting things, at least to me. Uh, Kadesh, this is something that would have been familiar um, at the southern border of Canaan in the kingdom of Judah that was mentioned during the Exodus. You also have um, Zin mentioned. Well, is that anything like the wilderness of Zin from the time of the Exodus and the wilderness wandering? Why, yes. We're covering similar places that our listeners, Bible readers, especially those who dedicate to listen and read along with you, or those who are working their way through an entire read-through of the Bible and happen to call upon this recording in order to figure out exactly what's going on. The Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, that's to the east. The Great Sea, we usually call that the Mediterranean. Watch for what is familiar and connect what is unfamiliar to things that you already know. That's one of the best keys on how to learn how to learn. After that, we can work on some of the vocabulary. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So as we look at this and we do see that this allotment is very specific, and, and if you have a map, you're absolutely right. It's better and easier to visualize what exactly, I guess, it looks like on the ground. 
Uh, but still, we see, you know, it's giving this detailed description of the borders, um, but according to their families, and it's given in four directions, south, east, north, and west. So if you were so, I guess, so motivated, you could probably draw it out roughly, even yourself, even if you weren't a, a map maker, because it is very detailed. And there's something about the detail that I think serves two purposes. I mean, on the one hand, it makes sense that we know exactly where their borders are. On the other hand, by the time anyone's reading this, even after it's written, they would have already known about those borders, would they not? I mean, that would have already been established by the time this was written. So so the purpose in that is what, just for posterity? Is it just to, um, I guess, remind people that this is a, is this is a real account, it's historical? I, I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, uh, what is the purpose of recording these in such detail? Would they not have recorded it elsewhere? Why repeat it for Joshua? Well, repeating it for Joshua is always a good review. If, if you remember some of the patterns that we had in the five books of Moses, the Lord spoke to someone, sometimes Moses, especially uh, Exodus onward, and the Lord says, tell the people this, and then you have this recounting where Moses or the other person recounts what the Lord said and the people had a response, Lord willing, it would be amen. Having this record in the, the next book, after the books of Moses, is a reminder of a few things. Moses is with the Lord now. Moses was still strong at 120 years old, but he was forbidden from going into the promised land. The only folks from that previous generation that had that blessing to go in are Joshua, the Lord's man on the scene, the prophet, um, the fellow recording this for us with the Holy Spirit, and Caleb. So building on chapter 14, you see how significant Caleb remains. We'll get to talk to him some more. Dr. Nagel at the St. Louis Seminary would always talk about concrete locatedness, uh, something that you could uh, build your life on, your faith on, trust even into eternal life. That is Jesus Christ our Lord, um, the descendant of the tribe of Judah. When we have real places that you can find on a real map, and if you really want to, you can get on a plane or get on a boat and theoretically get to, to verify that they're a real place. That's significant to me. We're not talking about once upon a time. We're not talking long, long ago in a galaxy far away. This is very real. And it was very practical for the daily lives of the descendants uh, of the Twelve. Remember, we've got Joseph giving us two of the half-tribes, and you've got the Levites who also don't have their own territory. So know that difference between the Twelve Sons and the Twelve Tribes. But when it came time for inheritance, when it came time for the years of Jubilee, Certain things only lasted for seven years, seven-year contracts, and then some would revert 
so that descendants of a particular tribe, particular clan would not be completely disinherited. You would need to know where the boundaries are. Good fences make for good neighbors. And if both sides of a boundary know exactly where that is and there's no argument, then that helps individuals and tribes get along better. And as we know from the rest of um, Old Testament history, they needed all the help they could get. They're sinners too. Indeed. Well, it begins as Joshua, or the author of Joshua, is laying out the allotments. They begin, and it seems to be a normal course of action, with Judah. And Judah, we see, gets the largest, or we will see, gets the largest allotment. And Judah, of course, emerges as a very, if not the most important clan. As you mentioned earlier, it's really setting the stage for our Lord and Savior. Um, is that why we kind of get this first? Is Judah by this time understood to be this very important clan? Um, they're kind of the, the, the leaders of all of them. I, mean, I guess what I'm saying is if they begin with Judah, we're going to have this little breakout for Caleb that we're going to read here in a second. Uh, but why Judah? Why beginning with Judah from the perspective of Joshua at that time? I mean, do they already know that the Messiah is coming from them? Well, Judah was the first to receive the allotment. Um, he was given greater prominence than his three older brothers. Why? Well, if you go back to Genesis, they had done, done things to lose their inheritance as firstborn. That is not as well known as, say, the story of Jacob and Esau. I was looking through uh, a 1960s edition of a hundred Bible stories. And there is one of the stories on this part of Joshua. That's it. There's a reason why we don't know some of those things from our childhood. There are stories we don't cover in Sunday school because they're not exactly age appropriate. They describe things that happen and they're mostly a lesson in what not to do. The older brothers um, of Judah are another counter example. But if you look also to uh, later in the book of Genesis, when Jacob himself is giving prophecies, he gives a leadership role to Judah, but not the double portion which went to Joseph. And that makes more sense as you get deeper into the book of Joshua, because Joshua's or uh, Joseph's sons each get their own territories as half tribes, and then don't get me started on Manasseh. Your map <laughs> will will give you most of the detail there. Excellent. Well, let's move on to the next section because then it. it steps away from Judah in particular, and now begins to talk a little bit about the land allotted to Caleb and his family. And uh, I'm sure our guest will remind us of who he is in a moment, but let's begin by reading the text. I'll be reading from 13 um, on through, oh, probably about 19. According to the commandment of Yahweh to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephnuah, a portion among the people of Judah. Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, Arba was the father of Anak, and Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, 
Sheshai, and Ahimon, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath-Sefer. And Caleb said, Whoever strikes Kiriath-Sefer and captures it, to him I will give Akash my daughter as a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. And he gave him Akash his daughters as a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a favor, pardon me, for a field. And she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Okay, so just pausing right there before we get into the rest of it. So this yeah. Caleb guy, he's a, he's a spy, right? <laughs> Who is yes. this, and why is he getting this special treatment? Well, he's a faithful spy. Caleb was one of the spies, and if you remember, there were 12 spies that were sent by Moses into Caden over a period of 40 days. How about that? That's a fun time period. Mm -hmm. They were to explore the Negev and the surrounding area. They were to make an assessment, uh, figure out the geography, what are the strength and numbers of the population, what are the what can this land raise? What were the cities like? Moses wanted them to be courageous and return with samples in addition to the report. Caleb's report was faithful. Caleb and Joshua, two very important figures now, but if you go back to the book of Numbers chapter 13 with the whole spy incident, the other spies were fearful, but Caleb uh, says, we should go up at once and possess it. We are well able to overcome it. Caleb trusted God. That faith is one of the reasons he's still alive and has the privilege of um, this blessing right now. Mm. Yeah, well, let's keep on reading just a little bit and get into the next section, starting with verse 20. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Judah according to their clans. The cities belonging to the tribe of the people of Judah in the extreme south toward the boundary of Edom were Kabziel, Eder, Jagur, Kina, Daimona, Adada, Kadesh, Hazor, Ithnan, Ziph, Telem, Baloth, Hazor Hadata, Kerioth Hezron, that is Hazor, Amam, Shema, Molada, Hazar Gada, Heshmon, Beth Pelet, Hazar Shual, Beersheba, Bizeothia, Baala, Eim, Ezem, El Todlad, Chesil, Horma, Ziklag, uh, Madmana, Sansana, Lebeoth, Shalim, Ain, and Ramon. In all, 29 cities with their villages. And in the lowlands, let's continue, just one more. Oh, sorry, I lost my place. And in the lowland, Eshteol, Zorah, Ashna, Zenoa, Inganim, Tapua, Inam, Jarmuth, 
Adulam, Soko, Azika, Sha'arim, Adithaim, Gedera, and uh, Gederothaim, 14 cities with their villages. Now, I'm going to pause there. It keeps on going, but I might need a break before I come back to them. But we're, we're now having a list, and this list is going to continue through the rest of the chapter. We'll, we'll sprinkle it in as we talk about it. But we have more and more uh, cities being listed off. A quick note about those before we go to break. Certainly. There are places in your neighborhood where you're studying the Word of God with us today, listening, that you know well and other people outside your area do not know. I could mention Gillette, Sundance, Moorcraft, Buffalo, Sheridan, uh, Ranchester, Dayton, Hardin, Billings, and a lot of people, well, Sundance, I, I sort of know of Sundance. There's a film festival, isn't there? Yes, it doesn't have to do much with this Sundance. But if you've heard of the Sundance Kid and Butch Cassidy, they got their nicknames from places in Wyoming. That is just something um, to help you not feel so bad if you don't know how to pronounce these words, if you couldn't find these places on a map, a lot of these folks wouldn't be able to find Wyoming on a map. They didn't know about the Americas. There are things that people know according to their immediate context. And by studying scripture, we get to understand what these people were like by naming off their villages. If you go through that big, long first paragraph, 20 through uh, 32, you can count, and it has 29 cities with their villages. That's what we're told. There aren't 29 cities. There are more names given, and the distinction is between a city and its um, village. You will find some repeated things, uh, such as names of people, names of false gods. Remember, we're going in to take over this place because the Lord had given it into their hands in the wars of the Lord. They were unfaithful. They had rejected the one true God. Now, followers uh, who trust the one true God in the second generation since the Exodus are coming into the promised land, and they are going to enjoy cities and villages and crops that they did not plant, and wells that they did not dig, and homes that they did not build. All of these are the real names of real places the Lord gave to the people of Judah as a gift. Well, we are going to talk more about those names and more about what it means for us today, but how it sets the stage for Jesus, even more importantly. But we're going to have to do that when we come back. So folks, don't go anywhere. Pastor Kane and I will pick back up where we left off when we get back. So we'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. 
but they need our help because Good Lutheran Books for Kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me is the Reverend Paul Kane, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Sheridan, Wyoming. Folks, thanks so much for taking the time to be in God's Word with us this morning, or maybe it's afternoon for you because you're listening as a podcast. Maybe it's uh, middle of the night and you're listening to it on KFUO's radio app or at KFUO.org. No matter when or where you tune into the program, I'm just so grateful that you've chosen to be in God's Word with us. Remember, if you have any questions or comments related to day, today's show or the program in general, or you just want to send me a message to say hi, or maybe you'd like to, me to get a message to the guest, all of those things can be done by reaching out to me by email at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. I'm also on X or Twitter, but I really don't go there very often. But if you'd like to try to find me there, you're welcome to do so. Hey, you can also uh, connect with us through the, the radio waves, right? We're over the air in St. Louis. So if that's your thing, you can listen to us live there. So many ways to be in the Word, so many ways to reach out to me. So I pray that you make use of all of those. Well, we're going to head back to our unique text here, the list of the cities. But as our guest has been showing us, they really are setting the stage for Jesus. And we can take great comfort. And I think this was something that our guest pointed out that I, I certainly uh, helps me. Think about the names of the cities around you that people don't know how to pronounce. I, I When you were talking about that, brother, I was thinking of um, we had a place called uh, Cashers. But really, if you pronounce it the way it was written, it would be cashiers, but everybody calls it cashier. Or uh, we had a place in North Carolina called uh, Worcester, but of course it's spelt like the English Worcester, but everybody just said Worcester, um, which is I'm pretty sure how they say it in England too. But and anyway, there's always these, if you're not familiar with it, but it also reminds us as you did that, yeah, these are real places. And uh, theoretically, you could find these places uh, in real life and go stand in them. But Heading back to our text, now I listed off a bunch of cities. Um, while we were off the air, you mentioned that you know a lot of these Hebrew names um, have a deeper meaning. Right? We, we might name a city after a person or after a, 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 a landscape or some sort of, I don't know, just something that reminds us of the place. Uh, but the Hebrew does the same thing. So maybe take us through a couple of these that might be interesting to people. Certainly. As I was preparing for this, I read through the text in a variety of English translations. I did venture into the Hebrew, and repetition, especially listening to the text, was helpful to me because I heard similar sounds, and one of those is Kiriath. Well, why is that mentioned so much? Well, it means city. You'll also hear N usually uh, spelled out E-N, like En-Gedi, it means spring. Uh, you'll hear other words that are fun to learn in Hebrew, say like sefer, it means book or scroll. 
uh, folks would have a Sefer Torah, a scroll copy of the Torah, the books of Moses. And that's a pretty interesting thing to look through if you ever get to a Bible museum or have a Bible museum that's traveling set up place in your parish hall. Baal. Yeah, that would be it, very cool. Yeah, Baal is is Baal. It's one of the false gods, uh, demons that we get to hear about here. When it comes to the names of real places, pronunciation does become important. And I'm not picking on you, brother. You could easily pick on me. <laughs> uh, there's apparently a, a Wyoming Latin accent at our online classical high school. I might be partially to blame for that. I prefer <laughs> ecclesiastical um, pronunciation for, for worship, for prayers, for the creed, for the liturgy, for the catechism. And I do like the reconstructed classical pronunciation for other things. If I'm reading Cicero or Julius Caesar or Quintilian uh, teaching a rhetoric class. What I mean by this is people notice accents. Are you from Missouri? Are you from New York? Are you from, well, Nebraska really doesn't have an accent. But different places have slightly different than spelled or elsewhere pronounced cities in order to tell, are you really a local? Do you really know people around here? Nebraska has uh, a city that looks like Cairo, but they pronounce it Cairo. Wyoming has a city, it looks like Opal, but it's pronounced Opal. It helps sort out the foreigners from the locals. And I, I find that interesting, too, because the people of Judah and the people of Benjamin are going to end up bonding together in a very significant way when there's the division between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Remember that later history and even flap, flip back and forth between your Old Testament maps of the 12 tribes and during the unified and then divided kingdom is something to look forward to and a few in, things to listen for as we hear more cities well and you'll hear them in my southern hebrew accent i suppose not southern <laughs> hebrew but of course southern united states hebrew you know when you're talking about accents um you know i, I two things come to my mind as events from the bible and I'm, i know that you thought of them too and of course the first is from judges chapter 12 with the yes. shibboleth right so that the gileadites we talked about this when we were in judges they use that word shibboleth as a test to identify the fleeing Ephraimites, which only works because they either couldn't set it or said it, said it in a funny way, and they were able to determine because of their accent who was whom. And of course, Peter got, gets in trouble with his Galilean accent, which betrayed him to those bystanders who were accusing him of being with Jesus. And of course, they were right, and it led to Peter's third and final denial of Jesus before that rooster crowed. So yeah, yeah it's just interesting you bring up accents because. Also, when I moved from North Carolina, where I'm from, to St. Louis for seminary, to Minnesota North for my first call, and to Connecticut for my second, and here to Minnesota South for my third, 
that's one of the common conversation pieces that I have with people. And because I, I find it fascinating, just the different things that we say, the how we say them, um, different things that we know about, different fruits and vegetables we eat, just the cultural differences, nothing significant, but just enough to be a little bit interesting. And you're absolutely right. It can, it can give you away. And all of us bodied and blooded together by Jesus Christ into the church. Indeed. It's, it's, that's, that's the wonderful part. Well, here we're going to hear some more. I'm going to start with verse 37. It merely continues. Zenon, Hadashah, Migdal God, Dilion, Mizpah, Jokthiel, Lachish, Bozkath, Eglon, Kaban, Lamam, Chitlish, Gederoth, Gederoth, Beth Dagon, Naama, and Makeda, 16 cities with their villages, Libna, Ether, Ashan, Iphtha, Ashna, Nezib, Kaila, Akzib, and Meresha, nine cities with their villages, Ekron with its town and its villages, from Ekron to the sea, all that were by the sea of Ashdod with their villages. Ashdod, its towns and its villages, Gaza, its towns and its villages, to the brook of Egypt and the great sea with its coastline. Uh, we're going to move into the hill country next, but pausing there, a few words that pop up that I know very well, uh, Gaza, of course, the great sea, um, but the brook of Egypt. Now that's shown up a couple of times, and I don't know that I've ever heard of the brook of Egypt anywhere else in the scriptures. I'm struggling to find that myself. Uh, I'm blessed to have a paper map, a paper Bible open, and also my laptop with my Bible software. It's spoiling me because I can float <laughs> over each of the titles and it will tell me interesting things. Gaza, if you want to hear about Gaza, listen to the news, really. <laughs> right. But, uh, Kyla, as you pronounced it, the first one in 44 is a city that David later defended against the Philistines. There was another city, uh, Ashan, the end of 42. It's slightly northwest of Beersheba. Well, we've heard of at least one, if not more, Beershebas uh, in Scripture. It was first assigned to the city of to the tribe of Judah, but later listed as assigned to the tribe of Simeon. So as Simeon gets its allotment to the south, some things shift. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that as we as we look at these, if we really were to dig in deep, and it is difficult to do on the radio, I think you yeah. you're absolutely right. Fact. Um, we happen to be pre-recording this one. Not all of my shows are live. This one doesn't happen to be one. I think I'm going to put a. I'm going to put it out there and ask the staff at KFO to maybe attach a map to their link to this particular. Uh, actually, this and the following chapters would all benefit from some good maps. So oh, yeah. I think I will. I will put those out there too. Um, all right. Well, why don't we keep on reading? And we are now in the hill country, starting with verse 48. And in the hill country, Shamir, Jatir, Soko, and Dana, Kiriasana, that is Dabir, and Anab, 
Eshtemo, Anim, Goshen, Halon, and Gila, 11 cities with their villages. 52. Arab, Duma, Eshan, Janim, Beth Tapua, Afeka, uh, Humta, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, and Zior, nine cities with their villages. Maon, Carmel, Ziph, Jutah, Jezreel, Jokdiam, Zanoa, Cain, Gibeah, and Timnah, ten cities with their villages. Halhul, Bethzur, Gedor, Ma'arath, Bethanoth, and Eltekon, six cities with their villages. Kiriath Baal, that is Kiriath Jarim, and Rabbah, two cities with their villages. And wrapping up this particular chapter, we have now in the wilderness Beth Arabah, Midim, Sekah, Nibshan, the city of salt, and Engedi, six cities with their villages. Verse 63 continues But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. All right, obviously we want to talk a little bit about that last verse 63, but even before we get there, uh, a couple of names that stood out to me, many we've heard before, but again, the city of salt. Now that's another interesting one. Um, i assuming it's located near uh, maybe a big salty sea, <laughs> like the yeah, Dead Sea, I don't know. Right near the Dead Sea. Uh, assigned to the tribe of Judah, right there in that verse. Yeah, Not so it's much else said about it. No, but isn't that neat? I mean, you know, you can kind of deduce that. Um, I don't think that's also anywhere else in the scriptures. But yeah, we so we actually learn a little bit about place names we otherwise would never even hear about. And and you talked about some of these words meaning river or brook, and some of them meaning just city. Um, I think of like Mexico City, you know, it just makes sense and in many ways shows us that there's things about the human nature that also have not changed a lot. I mean, they may be in Hebrew and therefore difficult for, you know, a Southern kid like me to pronounce, but at the same time, they, they really reveal how we name our places after important people and things and events. Um, and some of these, like Kiriath Baal, as you already mentioned earlier, that's named after false gods, but it was named by people who put their faith, hope, and trust in those gods. So uh, now that last verse, though, that's the one that stands out to me is pretty interesting because it says the Jebusites, they could not drive out, and so they dwell in Jerusalem to this to this day. Tell us a little bit about the Jebusites and, and Jebus um, city, which is Jerusalem. Well, according to uh, the Lutheran Study Bible, to this day, we're um, talking about 1400 B.C., just to give a, a historical thing. The Jebusites, they're in the book of Joshua. They're in the books of Samuel. They're Canaanites. They inhabited Jerusalem, which they didn't call Jerusalem yet. They called it Trampled Place, Jebus, prior to the conquest initiated by Joshua. And that's a few chapters ago as we go. But it doesn't get completed until King David. That is Second Samuel. That's a ways down the road in the Old Testament, 
it, it's really a hard right turn many pages away. Um, the book of Kings agrees with the book of Joshua that it was called Jebus back then. And we're, we're talking about Canaanites. And the Canaanites didn't always get along with the Israelites. Right, exactly. Uh, that continues, of course, for a long time. And of course, we have this whole situation where they're trying to take over these places. Well, uh, as we look back through all of these names and all of the things that we, uh, we have gone through today, you know, what are some of the big takeaways? Like, you know, if, if someone were to say, well, hey, what was the, what was the lesson on today's uh, episode of Thy Strong Word? How might they be able to share what we were talking about with the people in a nice, succinct way? When we're talking about real names, real places, real people that the Lord placed in his promised land where he wanted them to be, it is a preview for us of heaven. That is the ultimate promised land. As we're setting the stage for Jesus, in the hill country of Judah, we have a little town called Bethlehem. That is important as uh, a city because of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation. It doesn't look that far away on a map, but Jerusalem nearby is where he would give his life for us and for the salvation of the world. People of every tribe and language and people God cares about the small details. When you're having a bad day, be reminded that your Lord cares about you and your things. He cares enough to be born and live and suffer and die and rise for you. The Holy Spirit cares enough about these people to continue witnessing to the existence of these people and these places, God cares about people long-term and for the big picture. I think that's a great word to start wrapping up our discussion on. Uh, before we call it a show, though, uh, I, I want to shift gears just a little bit and ask, a, ask you to tell us a little bit about some of the things you were talking about um, in terms of the classical education and your involvement with that. Share with the people a little bit about what that's about. I'm familiar, but I think they would benefit from knowing. Well, thank you. Um, classical education is how the Greeks and the Romans educated their children, not how they educated their slaves or their employees. It's an education for free people. Artes liberales is the way you'd say it in Latin. But today we'd say liberal arts. Unfortunately, words change um, meanings and connotations over time. And liberal today has a very different meaning, often synonymous with, with progressive or, or leftist. leftist. We're talking about an education for a free people. And if you want a free people, look ahead to the time of the Lutheran Reformation. I even think of the Greek word Eleutherus, which uh, Luther himself used to re-spell his German last name. 
Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, Johann Sturm were among the Lutheran reformers who, in a return to the basics, rebooted education that the Greeks and the Romans used in order to teach not just the wealthy and not just the boys, but provide a Christian education paid for by the state for everybody. We focus on the building blocks of each subject. We call that grammar. Then we move on to dialogue and asking questions and answers about this. Think about the questions and answers of Luther's small catechism and the explanation, and you'll better understand dialectic, logic. Then we teach young people how to be winsome advocates for truth as they learn rhetoric, not empty words out of your state capital or your national capital, but words that move, inspire, persuade. Grammar, logic, and rhetoric are the, the building blocks of that. We've got a lot of elementary schools around these days, but grammar schools, that's what we used to call them. Martin Luther Grammar School in Sheridan, Wyoming has been around for 20 years. I was blessed to be headmaster of that school for uh, 13. Our associate pastor is now headmaster and is doing a wonderful job. We've expanded into our academy. We can't call it grammar school anymore once we hit 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. We read real texts. We don't just read about the Constitution of the United States. We read the Constitution of the United States. We don't just read excerpts from Shakespeare. We read entire plays by Shakespeare. Children are taught how to memorize. They know how to work, even do a reasonable amount of homework. We're preparing them for life to be good, um, winsome servants for people in this world, according to their vocations. And if they don't know Jesus Christ, if your children, your grandchildren don't know Jesus Christ, all the other stuff that we do to fill up our schedules and our evenings and exhaust ourselves on the weekends for, it's all for nothing. If our young people are not in heaven with us. Classical Lutheran education is the kind of education Lutherans think their kids are getting in a Lutheran school. It's the kind of education every child could benefit from. I also teach rhetoric at Wittenberg Academy. It's an online uh, Lutheran high school. They have many missionary children from around the world not just for high school, but for lower grades as well. And classical education is really spreading in our Concordia system. And this is a great positive development. And a brand new college from scratch, Luther Classical College, plans to open fall of 2025, Casper, Wyoming. So soon. It's, it, isn't that amazing how quickly it's come upon us? I remember you guys, you know, vision casting on this not too long ago, it seems. It's, it's very real now. I've served as an interim librarian for a year 
We've now passed that on to a, a permanent librarian. We have so many books already been donated and donations are coming in, not just for operations, but for some of the things that are, well, concrete <laughs> dorms. We plan to break ground, uh, level some very hilly land near Mount Hope Lutheran Church and the Lutheran Ministry Center of the Wyoming District next summer and begin construction on our very first buildings. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, I tell you what, we're toward the end of the show, and I'm so glad that you helped us through this text. We, we have a similar one coming up, folks, but we're going to keep on doing that, making those connections to real life and, of course, to Jesus. But this morning, I'd like to thank my guest, the Reverend Paul Kang. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Sheridan, Wyoming. And by the way, you can learn more about the Consortium for Classical Lutheran Education at ccle.org. You can learn more about Wittenberg Academy at wittenbergacademy.org, I believe, .org, right, sir? Yes. Uh, and then you can learn more about, tell me the web address for the, the college, Luther College. Lutherclassical.org. Lutherclassical.org. Yes, my kids are, um, my first, my son's getting within a few years of college age, so I've been watching with uh, very, very uh, intense attention to that uh that new college that's coming up. And I'm so thankful for you guys' work. Well, anyway, uh, thanks, Pastor, for being on the show. I look forward to having you on again. Peace be with you. To you also. Folks, tomorrow is the first Friday in October, which makes it a free text first Friday episode. We'll have a live episode, and the topic is church membership. What does it mean to be a member of a congregation? Do we have a theology of membership? Join me and my guest, the Reverend Brant Hoffman, uh, he's the pastor of Christ Lutheran Church and School in Coos Bay, Oregon. That's going to be tomorrow, Friday, October 6th. Also just happens to be my birthday. So we'll see you guys tomorrow on our Free Text First Friday. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.